Amen. Good morning again. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. It's good to see you here this morning. Glad that you are here and trust that the Lord will continue to minister to your heart. Uh, Today, GCF exists to glorify God. We do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. One of the primary ways we do that is through the hearing and the listening of the Word of God being preached. That's what we're uh, driving our attention to in the moments that we have together now. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 9, as we continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark. The words will be up on screen behind me. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50 this morning. Uh, just as you're turning, a quick reminder, we've had uh, two weeks in, a, in our adult Sunday school class on parenting. Next week, we're going to end that short session with, with a Q&A, and so we'll have some folks up here. So I want to encourage you, even if you've not been able to be part of that the last couple of weeks, but you may have questions about parenting, you can, uh, there's a box in the back, but actually you can just email me. Many of you all have already emailed me, which is great, uh, and uh, we'll I'll tabulate those, and uh, next week we'll address as many of those questions as you have. So even if you haven't been able to make it, uh, but you do have some questions and you want to hear, I want to invite you to come 8.45 next Sunday morning as we close that short series on parenting. If you're able to, please stand as I read from God's Word, Mark chapter 9, excuse me, starting at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, give us ears now to hear what you want us to hear. Give us ears to hear in in whatever stage of life we are at. No matter where we are, where we have been, what might lie ahead. Our great need this morning, Lord, is, is to hear you speaking to us exactly what you want us to hear from your word this morning. So by your spirit, speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. No one seems to be frightened by hell in America if shows on Netflix are any indication of what we think about hell. I guess hell really is just a laughing matter. It's no longer really a cause for concern or fear or terror. And whether or not hell exactly exists or is real, I guess that's a matter for another time. Let's just keep watching. And if you speak about hell as if you actually believe it, well, you're likely to be mocked. It's actually become an unthinkable position to hold, maybe even borderline ridiculous. And the people around you will will no doubt think less of you. 
many sincere Christians are very troubled by the doctrine of hell. They, they more or less view it kind of like a bug that needs to be fixed within Christianity. Some might even go so far as to say that is the problem with Christianity. That is the problem with the church. Yes, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Uh, but I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm not the kind of Christian that actually believes there's a hell where some people end up. I don't, I don't believe in such a terrible, harsh, unloving God. I mean, that kind of thing that, that's for the medieval church. That's what they believed back then. That's what those Puritans taught. But that's not me, because I believe in Jesus. And so there, there is this sense, even from within and among the church, that, that no thinking Christian today could possibly, seriously, believe in hell. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of hell is difficult. I don't delight in preaching about hell any more than you delight about thinking about people who would suffer under the eternal wrath of God, because these are people that you know. These are people that you care about. Perhaps it's a parent, or a child, or a teammate, or a roommate, or a family friend, or a colleague at work, or your best friend growing up. All these people have names and faces. They're important to you. You love them. You care about them. And you do wonder about their eternal destinies. And yet the reality of hell remains one of the biggest stumbling blocks to Christianity and, yes, to the Christian faith. And I don't know that I have to remind you, but in recent days, even in the last 10 years, let's say, there have been all kinds of books that, that now have a, a fresh, updated take on hell. In fact, I just listened to a podcast this last week with an updated take on hell. And it's not that God has changed, so the argument goes, but now we as human beings, we're just so much more refined. We're much more sophisticated. Uh, we're much more mature in our understanding. We are the most progressive people in the history of all humanity. So our thinking on hell is now much more refined and sophisticated. And because we have evolved in our thinking, we don't need to deal then with this troublesome doctrine of hell anymore. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? For as mature and sophisticated and refined in our thinking, I guess as we all are, somehow we still can't seem to figure out how to fix a pothole. That's elude, that eludes us. Some who name the name of Jesus have shed the baggage of hell and rid themselves of it altogether. Rob Bell, this is now a decade ago, wrote a book called Love Wins. In case you're wondering, he's still out there. I, I, I hadn't heard from him in a little while, and according to my Google shirts, yeah, he's still out there and propagating a whole bunch of lies. But in this book, Love Wins, he says this, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity will spend forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith, and to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. So, brothers and sisters, 
the world, your friends and mine, your loved ones and mine, what we desperately need to hear is the truth, the truth about hell. And it's not the truth according to Rob Bell, and it's not the truth according to Jeff Brinkman. The truth that every person needs to hear needs to come from Jesus himself, from the lips of Jesus. And so that is our main task this morning, to actually hear what Jesus, the true king, the true Messiah, what does he say about hell? Because if we love the Bible, and we love God, and we love the cross of Christ, and we love the good news of the gospel, then we will actually listen closely to what Jesus has to say here about hell. And yes, we will in fact warn people of hell because as we see here in Mark chapter 9, that's what Jesus does. His teaching here about hell is in the context of really this very long course on what it means to follow him as a disciple what it means to follow him faithfully. And it's, I find it interesting that here in Mark, Jesus is not addressing a, a question from maybe a, someone in the crowd or an interested onlooker. That's not what he's doing here. Nor is he debating scribes and Pharisees at this moment. Next week, he'll do that. But remember what Jesus has been doing. He's been breaking up arguments among his own disciples. Uh, Jesus, who's the greatest? We want you to rank us. By the way, we already took a straw poll. We know it's not Peter. It could never be him. But, but pick one. Jesus, what, what do you mean you want us to get low and stay low, that that's how you become great in the kingdom? Uh, Jesus, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, but we're going to go ahead and take care of this because he's not one of us. He's not, he's not following us, Jesus, so you, you, want us to, you want us to bring down fire, right? You want us actually to, what do you want us to do, Jesus? You want us to rejoice wherever the truth is proclaimed? And it's right in the middle of this discipleship course that, in effect, Jesus says, uh, hey, guys, we need to talk about some serious matters here, very serious matters. So clearly, Jesus wants to make sure his own disciples know what he has to say about hell and how they are to think about it. And in fact, in our text here, Jesus zeroes in really on three, three important subject matters, hell sin, and suffering. And so we'll take those in the order that they come. We'll spend the bulk of our time on those first two because in this sense, they are the most important. So what does Jesus really think about hell? Hell is real and hell is bad. Hell is real and hell is bad. Three times here in the text, verse 43, verse 45, and 47, Jesus addresses that. He speaks of hell very concretely. It is better, Jesus says, to enter life, to live life in the kingdom of God as a, blame, as a lame, blind cripple. Better to do that than it is to go to hell. Now, the word for hell here is, is not the word Hades. A lot of times, especially in the Old Testament, that is the word for hell, Hades being the place of death. Uh, you die, you, you go to the place of the dead. Hades is much more of a neutral term. The word that Jesus uses here is a different word for hell. It's actually the Greek word Gehenna. It comes from Gehinnom, and it actually refers to a valley, the Valley of Hinnom. Now, what's the big deal with the Valley of Hinnom? Well, the Hinnom Valley was a large valley on the west side of old Jerusalem. But it was well known for its degrading and grotesque and disgusting practices 
which took place there. In the days of King Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28. In the days of King Manasseh, 2 Chronicles 33. Small children were offered by the Israelites as a sacrifice to the pagan god Moloch in this valley. It was awful. It was horrific. Child abuse at its worst. And when King Josiah instituted some reforms, 2 Kings 23, well, this valley was declared an unclean place. And so we read in Scripture that the the prophets proclaimed oracles of doom on this valley. It became a place of, and a symbol of final judgment. And so Jeremiah 23, or sorry, Jeremiah 32 talks about this valley, calls it the valley of slaughter. And so over the centuries, the valley of Hinnom became known as the garbage dump in Jerusalem. It, it was the trash heap. Everybody understood that. Now, and again, we have to keep in mind, this is long before the days of green bins and red bins, or, or maybe you don't have red bins, I don't know, blue bins where you, where you sort through all your waste. There was none of that. The Valley of Hinnom was the place where you took all of your garbage. The Valley of Hinnom was the place where you took all of your waste. And the Valley of Hinnom was the place where, especially in times of war, and there were a lot of times of war, that's the place where you threw dead bodies on the pile, and they just burned continuously. We don't even want to think about the smell, and we really don't want to think too much of the worms and the maggots and the vermin that infested this valley. But that's what we're talking about, because that's what Jesus is talking about. And we first read of this grotesque imagery from the prophet Isaiah, when he, he speaks about The day of judgment, Isaiah 66, verse 24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That's Gehenna. That's hell. It's a place of eternal punishment, a place of eternal dread where the fire burns and the worm devours. It's what Jesus is talking about here. Gehenna is that place of eternal punishment. Now that word, Gehenna, is used in the New Testament for hell 12 times. And 11 times it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. So if you want to blame somebody for the doctrine of hell, you really got to talk to Jesus. And the point of this description, brothers and sisters, is to show us, is it's to describe for us that hell is real and it is very, very bad. It is, as, it is as bad as a constant fire and continual burning. Now, sincere Christians over, really over the centuries have differed and debated on whether or not, when we think about hell, is it a literal fire? Is it literal burning? Of course, there are other places in Scripture where we read that hell is utter darkness, There's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is Old Testament imagery. So is Jesus referring to a a literal fire here? Well, we don't really know. Probably not, but don't miss the point. Hell is that bad. It is that real. And so we simply cannot say that, well, hell is simply a Christless eternity. Hell is the place where Jesus isn't. Perhaps maybe you've had conversations with friends about that. Well, if you don't have any interest in Jesus Christ, maybe that's you today. I'm glad you're here. But if you really don't have any interest in Jesus Christ, 
then what kind of warning is it for me to stand up here and say that hell is where you're going to be separated from Christ for all eternity? You're thinking, well, that done deal. I'm already doing that. So there's no warning there. So hell simply is not just God's absence. That doesn't account for the severity of punishment. Nor can hell simply be the place of self-punishment. C.S. Lewis kind of took this view where he basically said God is letting you have your own way. He's letting you have what you want. You want to be away from him? You don't want anything to do with him? Well, hell is God saying, okay, fine, here you go. Now, there is truth in that. But hell, as Jesus speaks about it here, is not a metaphor for the psychological distress that you would feel when you finally realize that you were wrong and you can't do anything about it for all eternity. Hell is much more real and far worse than that. Jesus says so. I mean, you really can't explain the language here, friends, without coming to that conclusion. Verse uh, 43, you go to hell. You are thrown into hell, verse 45 and verse 47. Those are violent pictures. So hell simply isn't the place where we just stop existing either. We're annihilated. The text just won't allow it. The worms don't die. The fires will not be quenched. Never put out What is Jesus saying here? What Jesus is saying is that hell is the active judgment of God upon sinners. It's the active, eternal judgment of God, a holy God, upon sinners. So hell is real. And that's why it's very, very bad. My first job out of seminary was as a youth pastor in Ohio, and the senior pastor of that church was a guy named Dave Hansen. He, he had written a couple books at this point. Probably his, his best book was, was called The Art of Pastoring, written specifically for pastors, but it had wide application, really, for every Christian. But I got to know Dave, obviously, and learned much from him. But in this book, he talks about his struggles with the doctrine of hell. He talks about his doubts. He writes this, there is an important place in the ministry for honest questions over doctrinal issues, but I am not proud of my tossing and turning over hell. Some pastors, and I would just include some followers of Jesus, wear their agnosticism about hell as a badge of honor. I've tried it. I've acted as if struggling to believe our Lord's words were a virtue. But I also found that when I became proud of my doubts, they suddenly became the sin of unbelief. For me, finally, waffling over hell became the sin of unbelief. Brothers and sisters, you start to pull on that thread of hell or the wrath of God upon sinners or final judgment you don't just lose a few key doctrines. You start to pull on that thread, you wind up with a different God. You end up with a different gospel. You wind up with a different purpose and point of life and a different point to living. You can't ignore or substitute and just kind of keep pulling on that thread and see how far it goes and and still say that you're worshiping the same Jesus and reading the same Bible 
You can't pull on this thread of hell without it affecting your life. And so perhaps that is a place for you to start this morning. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, help my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, very practically, the reality of hell and the reality that it is real and that it is bad is in fact actually why you can actually forgive the worst sin done against you. That deep and dark violation of your person, that can be forgiven because that sin is either fully paid for on the cross or it will be fully paid for in hell. God is sovereign, he's the judge of everything, he will right every wrong, there is no sin that will go unpunished. It's either placed on the back of Jesus or in the fires of hell. It's either paid for by the blood of Jesus or will be fully paid for by that person in hell. So if you don't really believe in hell, why would you forgive anybody? The fact that you do believe in hell means that you can actually forgive even horrific sins done against you. Hell is real and hell is bad. Here's the second subject that Jesus confronts us with, sin. What does he have to say about sin? Sin is deadly serious. Sin is deadly serious. This is verses 42 through 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, well, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into, into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You, you can't help but notice the over-the-top language here that Jesus uses. You've, you've got... You've got people being drowned. You've got body parts cut off. You've got people being thrown into hell. Now, it needs to be said here that Jesus is not speaking literally here of cutting off certain body parts to escape hell. Scripture forbids self-mutilation, self-violence. There's no place for body mutilation. Many passages in the Bible speak of that. Deuteronomy 14, verse 1 in particular. And we know, don't we, Even if I I cut off my hand, well, the Lord's after my heart. Cutting off my hand may not do anything. So Jesus here is, is intentionally overstating his case so that we would understand the severity of sin. No sin, no sin, brothers and sisters, is worth going to hell over. It's far better to deal with sin, to deal with temptation severely, than to have your soul destroyed by it. Because eternity is at stake. Your eternity and mine. So you cannot afford to fool around with sin. 
And Jesus here gives us two reasons why. Here's the first reason. Your sins could cause another disciple to stumble. Verse 42. Your sin could cause another disciple to sin. The little ones that Jesus addresses here in verse 42, that's not just young children. Certainly could include them, but that's just another word for simple Christians. Disciples. Simple, little ones. I am little, and so are you. We're not the greatest. Jesus says, if you cause another disciple, a simple disciple, a follower of his, and and again, when he says to sin, that can mean everything, brothers and sisters, from completely abandoned faith to just stumble over themselves. But if you cause that, it would be better for you to have a huge rock hung around your neck and you be hurled into the bottom of the sea never heard from again. Woe to the person who turns another disciple away from Jesus or from following Jesus. It's kind of like what John and the disciples were doing last week. At least that's the direction they were heading, remember? Verse 38, hey, Jesus, we don't know who this guy is. He's he's not following us. He's not one of us, so we're about to stop him. And Jesus says, "Uh, no, no, you're not. I mean, that's the path that they were on. That's how, that's how serious sin is. That your sins and mine are so serious that it could lead another disciple of Jesus to walk away from Jesus. And Jesus doesn't overlook that. He doesn't ignore that. In fact, Jesus says, Jesus says, It would be better to anchor a large concrete stone around your neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause another one of his disciples to turn away from him. Doesn't matter if that person has advanced academic degrees and has written many books. Doesn't matter if she's on the speaking tour, has the most popular podcast. Doesn't matter if they're causing others to stumble and to sin and to turn away from Christ in the comfort of their living room. It would be better for them to sink to the bottom of the sea. That's what Jesus says. I mean, that's how serious our sins are. So if I stand up here, brothers and sisters, and I say, you know what? I think Rob Bell's right. Hell's just figurative language. Love wins. Doesn't really matter. Try hard to be a good person. At the end of the day, end of your life, it's all good. Everybody's going to go to heaven. It would be better for me to have a concrete rock hung around my neck and to be thrown into the sea and to drown. And that's the same if you're a home group leader or you lead a ladies' Bible study or you're a discipleship group leader, or you're a Sunday school teacher, you're discipling teenagers, or you're a parent. If you cause another believer, maybe less mature, maybe younger, to walk away from Jesus by your teaching, by your example, by your manner of life, Jesus says, it'd be better for you to drown. This is a hard word, a hard word from Jesus. 
And perhaps some of you here need to actually just re-examine and maybe reevaluate the Jesus that is actually saying these things. So read the Gospels for yourself. Don't let Rob Bell dictate what you think about heaven and hell and Jesus. Don't let that, the, that, the most popular podcast ever, or whatever the case may be, form your thoughts and opinions about Jesus and hell and sin. Read the Gospels. What does Jesus have to say? Because whatever it is that Jesus has to say, however hard it is, and it is, he says a lot of hard things, you know it's the truth. You know it's the truth. I think it's the natural human tendency. If I'm being honest, I want the Jesus that is open-hearted. I want the Jesus that is tender. Yes, I want the Jesus a few chapters earlier in Mark who eats with tax collectors and sinners and the sexually immoral and the transgender and the prostitutes and who welcomes everyone. Yeah, I want that Jesus. I want to worship that Jesus that has very little patience for the proud and the arrogant and the self-righteous, sometimes ignoring the fact that actually I am the proud and the arrogant and the self-righteous. We want the Jesus, meek and lowly and tender and mild, who stoops down and condescends to us. But brothers and sisters, that Jesus is the same Jesus here who warns us of the fires of hell and the deadliness of our sins. It's the same Jesus. So if you don't have a Jesus who can do both, then you don't actually have the real Jesus. It's not the real Jesus. Number two reason why you can't afford to fool around with sin. Not only can we potentially lead others astray, but according to verses 43 through 48, you could end up in hell. Your life could end in the fires of hell if you don't take sin seriously. Jesus says here that your situation with sin is so drastic and so severe that there is actually only one way. There's only one way to deal with it, and it involves amputation, spiritual amputation. Theologian said this, there are too many people sitting in too many churches that are going to hell with too good eyes, too good legs, and too good hands. And that's the problem. There should be more amputees going to heaven. There should. Puritan author John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. I mean, Jesus here, he's so clear. He's very straightforward, isn't he? I mean, the disciples, when they're hearing this, they didn't need to ask follow-up questions. It's not that they didn't have follow-up questions, but this is not a parable from Jesus. They, They knew exactly what he was talking about. And so we do as well. We don't need to guess. Jesus, what, what do you really mean by that? So what is, the, what is the metaphorical arm that you need to cut off this week? What's the, what's the figurative eye that just needs to be plucked out? I mean, you and I are called to fight sin no matter what it takes. So what do you need to lop off from your life? this week? What what are you going to go without this week? And brothers and sisters, even if you've tried a thousand times in the past with maybe very little success, do not give up. Do not stop fighting in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus wants all of us to see here how serious our sins really are. And yes, be willing to sacrifice even your body if need be so that you don't go to hell. So is it a social media account that that needs to be cut off? That's an easy entrance into sin. Is it the internet on your phone? Alcohol? Some kind of drugs? I mean, every last one of us here has at least one thing. What is that one thing? Where in your life are you actually willing to say, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Christ in me, I am not going to be killed by this sin? What is that one thing? Maybe you've been putting yourself in some compromising situations, easy situations where, you know what, it's just super easy to sin, it's kind of in secret. It's not a sexual affair. It's not a double life. It's just companionship. I mean, there's no escaping God. Jesus wants us to to see this so that we would actually willingly choose to sacrifice our bodies, if need be, so that we don't go to hell. So, So what Jesus is saying here, friends, is that hell is way worse than you losing your job. Hell is way worse than you being poor or lonely or depressed. Hell is way worse than you not having a date on Friday night. Hell is way worse than not having sex or being very lonely. Hell is way worse than being killed. Jesus spoke this way, church, clearly, severely, not simply for shock value. I mean, Jesus is not interested in receiving some sort of emotionally vague response from any of us this morning. Jesus spoke like this so that you would run to him, so that you would not be killed by your sin. He he spoke like this so that you would run away from your sins and run to him and be saved. And that's the good news of the gospel. Because nobody else can save you from hell. Nobody else can save you from your sins than Jesus. So your your Christian school can't save you. And your great Christian parents can't save you. And a great marriage can't save you, and obedient children can't save you, and great friends can't save you from hell. None of them can. But the good news of the gospel is that God in His grace has provided a way for sinners, not just to escape hell, but in fact to embrace the glories of heaven where Jesus rules on His eternal throne. I mean, the gospel assures us that Jesus died on the cross. He died the death that we deserve. Why? Because none of us took our sins seriously. We didn't. No big deal. Get to it later. I like that sin. None of us took our sins seriously. But Jesus, in his kind grace, died on the cross for us to free us, to rescue us, so that we might actually have eternal life. 
So there's no better day than today to repent and to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ as your Savior for salvation. I mean, the doctrine of hell, brothers and sisters, is not a bug that needs to be fixed in Christianity. It's not a design flaw. It's actually a design feature because the reality of hell, if you're you're a Christian here this morning, the reality of hell should motivate you and me to live a holy life, a God-pleasing life. We don't want to just get as close as we can to our favorite sins. We want to be walking in the other direction. Repent. It ought to motivate us to to pray for for those who are hopelessly lost in their sins. It it should motivate us and cause us out of love to, to warn those who have no fear of hell at all. And for all of us, it should cause us to throw ourselves down at the mercy and the grace and the kindness of Jesus Christ. Because hell is real. Sin is deadly serious. And only Jesus can save you. Third important subject, and we'll handle this very briefly. Suffering in this life is normal and expected. Suffering in this life is normal, and it ought to be expected. Verses 49 through 50, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, these few verses appear only here in Mark, and they have confused commentators for centuries. There's only one place in our Bibles where salt and fire are actually uh, come together. It's Leviticus 2, chapter, uh, uh, verse 13. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain or your meat offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Totally clear. Now, the combination here of salt and fire, it's really talking about the offerings here, I think indicates there that there is a purification that takes place. There's a purifying effect in our lives as believers as we walk in suffering, as we walk in trials, and certainly in persecution. The Apostle Paul, I think, picks this theme up, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. So what Jesus is saying here is that Following him and being his disciple is like making your life a burnt offering. It's like making your life a burnt offering. It's total. It's not like half a burnt offering. It's total. It's irrevocable. Everyone's going to be tested. Every disciple of Jesus is called to offer up everything to God. And you can be assured that if you endure, that God, in fact, will be with you. So when Jesus says here, verse 50, that when we maintain our saltiness, what he's talking about there is when when we maintain what makes us unique, salt is a preserver, purifier. When we maintain that, we actually will be at peace with one another. So hear what he's saying. Everybody, every disciple of Jesus is going to suffer as a disciple in some way. But, brothers and sisters, if you suffer with salt, in other words, if you suffer and endure with joy, with peace, with hope, 
with faith in Christ, you actually maintain your saltiness. And you're not going to turn on each other. So don't lose your hope. Don't lose your joy. Don't lose your faith in Christ in the midst of sufferings. When you give your life to Christ and follow him as his disciple, you will face many hard things. Jesus will ask you to do many hard things. But at the end of your earthly life, you enter into life. Yes, hell is real. Sin is deadly serious. Suffering is normal and to be expected this side of eternity. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have a wonderful Savior. To know him is to know life. If you put your trust in him, then at the end of your earthly life, whatever happens in this earthly life, you find life for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, our great need this morning has been to hear clearly from you. And I pray, O oh God, that that's what has happened. So as we have heard your word, I pray, O oh God, that we would not just leave here without much thought, but that you would, by your kind grace, work in our hearts to change us, to transform us, Help us to see clearly, Lord, our own lives where we fall short, where we are cavalier with our sins, where we shrink back from honestly talking and telling about the truth, your truth. Lord, reveal that to us, but don't just leave us there. Give us your grace. Give us your help. Give us your wisdom. Give us your courage. Give us your strength, I pray, this day and this week, that we would, because we love you and because we take your word seriously, that our lives would be changed. Be pleased to do this, Lord, I pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Christianity is serious business, isn't it? I mean, Jesus spoke with great seriousness here, concreteness about hell and sin and suffering. He doesn't treat these subjects lightly, nor does he offer just cheap and easy remedies. No, he does something far greater. He actually offers the only remedy for our souls. He offers himself, Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He humbled himself to the point of death, absorbing all the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. We're the ones that deserved hell. But in the good news of the gospel, all God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. Jesus willingly, lovingly, joyfully embraced the cross. So if, if you are united to him by faith, if you have put your trust in him, then all the blessings of his redemptive work are yours.
It's a gift of his grace, and what an incredible gift it is. But if that doesn't describe you here this morning, then please refrain from receiving communion. But don't leave here without talking to someone about the eternal matters of heaven and hell in Jesus. In just a minute, I'll invite you forward. We have uh, both wine and grape juice here. You can come on up, take a piece of bread, dip it, uh, and then take it back to your chair and then uh, receive the elements there. We'll have the aisles go uh, first, and then once they're done, the center folks can come on through. Let me pray, and then we can begin. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we recognize again this morning that there is no self-salvation. There is no saving others. What we can do is humble ourselves before you, repent of our sins, and trust in your finished work on the cross. Your death has brought us life. And so, Lord, may, may we never lose sight of our ongoing, continual need for you. May we rejoice, even as we receive communion, that the debt has been paid. Fill our lives, Lord, with great thanksgiving, I pray. Thank you for redeeming us from our sins. And we confess, O oh God, that, that you are our God and we are your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.